on today's episode, The Science and Practice of Running with Dr. Phil Hayes. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. was totally worth it (laughs) I don't know if I did a good enough job of generating enough hype but I just I think built it all up in my mind uh interviewing the contributor or main editor of this book um the science and practice of middle and long distance running um co-contributed or co-edited with Rich Blagrove Dr Phil Hayes and as you've known if you've listened to past episodes I have been reviewing these um chapters some chapters within the book and this is so much that we could cover and already have already have a lot of ideas of other topics that I can come up with and other people I can interview based on this book and so um, it was only rightly so that I interviewed Dr. Phil Hayes to talk about the book so he's a sports scientist he is a senior lecturer at Northumbria University in the department of sport exercise and rehabilitation His main teaching areas encompass around fitness training, the physiology of training, which um, the chapter that he's um, contributed into this book is all around the physiology of running. Um, And he has particular interests around aerobic training and the physiology of endurance exercise. And um, I didn't really know this until I jumped on um, the chat with him, but he's been a running coach. He's a level four running coach for the past 25 years and he works with runners anywhere from 800 meter distances up to the marathon and with recreational runners all the way up into um national kind of um under i think he said under 23s and 24s and so wide range of runners that he does work with and so in this episode we talk about the book we talk about what he learned or any revelations or insights from editing the book and um, I guess associating himself with all these um, great contributors who contribute to each chapter. And we just delve into talking about running, talking about running training, how to best prepare for a race, um, how to taper, how to monitor training loads. And it was just a fascinating conversation. It covers the foundations really, really well. And he um, talks in a way that's really easy to understand piqued my interest, um, got me um, involved in a lot of um, engagement, always wanting to talk on, on like different um, different topics. As soon as he was sort of uh, laying out a foundation, I sort of want to chime in and um, talk about my experiences with that sort of topic as well. So it just <clears throat> lays out for a fantastic conversation. I was glad I had him on. I'm thankful that he agreed to come on and hope you enjoy. So without further ado, let's dive in. I am delighted to have with me Dr. Phil Hayes. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brody. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. This book has been um, very, very useful um, for the the content of this show, as you've seen in the last three episodes that I have released. <laughs> um, yeah, great before we get started that. into a bunch of these questions, can you maybe just introduce yourself and uh, maybe just talk about how this book came about and how it's in my hands today? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm an academic. I work at Northumbria University, and that's in Newcastle, which is in the northeast of England, so on the northeast coast. Um, I've been there since 1991 when I first started. I started on a temporary post, and that got made permanent, and I just kind of settled in the northeast. Um, before that, I did my, my master's degree at Loughborough and my undergraduate degree at um, Roehampton in London. 
And between doing those two bits and starting at Northumbria, I worked on the National Fitness Survey, where we travelled around the country doing kind of tests of the whole national um, survey. And outside of that, I'm also um, an athletics coach. I've been a coach um, since December 92, so I've been 25 plus years now coaching. I've coached from recreational runners up to kind of GB juniors, masters athletes that have run internationally. Um, and I coach from 800 metres up to the marathon, but middle distances is probably kind of my specialism within all of that. Um, as a runner, I ran cross country, um, chronically overtrained, um, ended up with some injuries, which kind of stopped me running really, I suppose. Um, so I've got a kind of big background in athletics um, and the book came about um, really from Rich. Um, Rich contacted me and asked me if I wanted to, to be involved and I just jumped at the opportunity. It seemed like a great project to be involved in, a great opportunity to put something out there where there was perhaps a gap missing of the more um, academic side of, of the science-based side of things. I think there's lots of excellent popular books out there, but maybe something a little bit more the, a strong science background was missing. So we, we, you know, decided to get involved with that. Yeah. Has this been, um, the first book that you've edited or have there been other kind of similar projects? No, this is the first one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been very exciting. Great. Good to be involved. So, uh, yes, I, I owe Richard debt of thanks for, um, roping me in. Yeah. Just out of curiosity from Rich reaching out to you to the book actually being published, um, in hard copy, how long did that whole process take? Ooh, um, probably 18 months, maybe, I think. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I have no, I, like, in terms of that whole world of publishing a book, I have no idea about, but um, it intrigues me, so I thought I'd ask. Um, yeah. It, as it, you know, know from the, the past episodes, we've had um, the psychology of running, running screening and strength assessments, and we've also had the training intensity distributions. Um I'm curious because as I interview a whole bunch of people for my podcast, I constantly learn and have like new revelations and change the way I actually run and change the way I coach and change the way I, I'm a physio. And so I just thought I'd ask as you put this all together, were there any um, things that you realized or emerging evidence that you've now changed how you coach and how you practice or any, um, any revelations that way? Yeah, quite a lot, really. I, I think, like you, you know, you, you're always trying to learn, aren't you? You're always trying to improve and, and find new things. Um, so I suppose in terms of um, the writing, the, the chapter that I, I wrote with Dan Gordon at the beginning, um, it, kind of in my head, I had lots of ideas over the years that I hadn't quite kind of crystallised, and it wasn't until I sat down to write the chapter. And there's a, a model that we've put together, which is um, kind of a an amalgamation of different models that currently exist and, and an updating perhaps of, of those models. And most of those previous models really just focused on the metabolic side of things, you know, the VO2 max, the lactate thresholds, the running economies, and, and very much a physiological metabolic side of things. And I, and I really felt that there was a bit missing there in terms of, you know, the neuromuscular side, you know, how the, how the muscles contribute to performance. Um, and so it was, in writing that chapter, it kind of crystallised my thinking a lot around that side of things and bringing those those things into play. So you kind of get an integration of perhaps where strength and conditioning starts to fit in. And also, I think the bit that we miss an awful lot with, with running when we look at the, the predictors of performance is fatigue resistance. And I think that's a really important part that we, we miss. You know, lots of these physiological tests we do when people are, are fresh and non-fatigued. And how that then translates into as they start to fatigue in a race and things start to, you know, towards the back end of the race when people's form starts to go, they really start to, to experience high levels of fatigue. You know, are, are those things really still working in the same way as we think they are? We measure them fresh in the lab, for example. So that, that was kind of really useful in, in kind of making me put all those bits together where I had lots of little ideas going around in my head and, and just kind of crystallising my thinking. Um, from an editing point of view, there was quite a lot that I learned. Um, Andy Galbraith's chapter, looking at the, the testing and measuring, he used um, critical speed as a way of predicting performance at different distances. And I hadn't done that before. I'd used critical speed in various contexts, but I'd never used it to um, predict performances. So that was quite helpful and, and something I can now take in, in terms of when we work with other athletes in the lab or when I work with my own runners, something we can use. Um, but two of the things that really, um, as a coach, 
really kind of inspired me were the, the information about um, the Bjorn Rodal's training. So he was the Olympic champion in, in 1996, over 800 metres. And he's a, he's a Norwegian guy, for those that aren't familiar with him. And in the, in the winters, it's pretty harsh winters in Norway, um, he would do sessions in an office block, running upstairs, doing plyometrics upstairs. And, and that kind of inspired me with my group this winter. I took on a new group in September and with all the, the COVID restrictions, we couldn't get indoors to train. Um, we're on the sea, we're on the coast and by the seafront, there's lots of flights of stairs. So I started incorporating lots of stair training into to what we do, <laughs> some plyometrics going up the stairs and things like that. So, so that was kind of useful. I hadn't ever thought of doing things like that as a way of incorporating some, some strength and conditioning into, um, into my training. Using, using the outdoor stuff and that kind of led on to using things like some of the street furniture along the seafront to do drop jumps from or, or jumps up or step ups and and so we've had a whole winter of training down on the seafront it's been pretty grim some nights in the winter on the seafront but <laughs> by and large it's, it's been good um so that was really good and also um steve macklin's chapter the chapter 10 where he he's um, reflecting on his kind of coaching and i was just Surprised in some ways that he didn't have any real kind of dedicated speed sessions, but almost every session there was some element of running fast. And I hadn't really kind of thought about doing that as, as a coach. We tended to often have some dedicated speed sessions. So just that idea of perhaps micro dosing the speed work. So you do a little bit quick running, you know, maybe four or five times a week, if, if depending on how often you train, obviously. Um, so they, they were really good. They were really insightful. Um, the movement screening chapter that you've you've reviewed recently. Um, I'm planning once we can get back indoors before we start doing our strength and conditioning next winter to screen everybody and some great ideas um, from that chapter. So so from the, from the kind of writing the editing point of view, um, there was some some good stuff there that was able to pick up on. And then in terms of recent research, I suppose, um, there's been some good stuff come out of the, the two hour marathon project, the sub two hour marathon project, um, Andy Jones's work. And again, they've realized that this kind of idea of the metabolic model um, has something missing and they're beginning to come around to the idea of fatigue resistance being important. So that sort of ties in. I don't think we know very much about that. Um, we, you know, we've done some stuff on that. Um, and actually, it ties in quite nicely with one of your episodes on um, eccentric training, where you were talking about um, during the swing phase of running, whether as the leg swings through, how the hamstring works eccentrically. And some of our previous work has shown that people who had better um, muscle endurance in the hamstrings during um, working eccentrically were able to maintain either their running style or their running economy better than people that were, were poorer. So that kind of all starts right. together in terms of fatigue resistance. Um, so, yeah, so, so I quite like the idea, you know, I'm, I'm very big on the idea of eccentric training. And I think hamstrings in particular have, have a really big role, certainly in terms of maintaining form. Um, mm. So, yeah, so those, those kind of things. Uh, and also one of my own PhD students, he's just finished a guy called Shaveen Riazati. And um, we looked at recreational runners and we had them do an interval training session. So they did... Um, five lots of 800 meters with um, an equal recovery time to their to the speed they'd run the 800s at. And we looked at the biomechanics um, and we also measured muscle strength before and after the run. And we found that muscle strength dropped in, in most people before and after. And that seemed to tie in with some of the changes in their running gait. And in particular, glute mead seemed to lose um, its ability to produce force. And in those people where that happened, their foot started to come across more to the midline. If you watch them front on, there was much more internal rotation. Um, and then we did a follow-up study where we looked at what happened 24 hours later. And some people hadn't recovered. Their, their gait was still disrupted 24 hours later, which we, we think, but obviously we need to kind of go on from, from that work, is, is probably a precursor perhaps to overuse injuries. If your gait is still disrupted the next time you go out running, then, then maybe that's a precursor to, to overuse. Wow. Cool. Um, good to know as well. Can you maybe just touch on, cause I haven't read it in the book just yet when you talked about critical speed or like assessing critical speed for running performance, can you maybe just delve into the specifics of that? Yeah. So, so critical speed is a, a measure of maximum steady state. Um, so, or, or threshold or whatever you, 
whatever term you want to, to call it, so your maximum sustainable speed. Um, mm. Now, traditionally, it's measured in a lab on a treadmill, and we take blood lactates, and there are various measures you can take for the blood lactates to identify it. But this is a, a field-based test, so normally you would do a series of time trial efforts. Um, the recommendation is usually to do at least three, and they should be probably somewhere between about three minutes and ten minutes in length. Um, and you can either do fixed distances and record the time you take, or you can run for a fixed period of time and record the distance. It doesn't really matter. You can do it either way. And then you plot a graph of the, the time against the speed. And from the, the slope of the graph, that is your critical speed. Right. Okay. And so once that's assessed, if you were to, I guess, rank everyone's critical speed against each other, the ones who have the greatest critical speed are more correlated to performance or endurance performance. Yes, you, you would expect, I think there's, there's less literature on that than there is on lactate measures because people haven't really used it much as a, a measure. It's becoming increasingly popular. Um, but yes, you, you'd expect that to be the case. Yes. Yeah, so high critical speed, you'd get better long distance performance. Uh, and people yeah. are also using it as a, a marker now for setting training. So, you know, mm. you can do training below that or maybe more interval type um, runs above that. Perhaps you might do a, a threshold type run at or around critical speed, but beyond that, you'd probably be more looking at more interval type stuff and below it, it's more your continuous running. Yeah, I was looking into that during like the preparation of the intensity distribution chapter when they're talking yeah. about um, doing some sort of lab um, performance and then extrapolating the data and then kind of correlating zone one, zone two, zone three and yeah, revolving so their training speed, around that. Critical speed essentially would be the end of zone two. Okay, right. Um, thought I'd get your advice as well on that. If someone doesn't have the opportunity to go to a lab test and have all that done. Is there something where it obviously wouldn't be as accurate, but something that you might recommend um, for people to test out or like maybe calculate a zone one, zone two, zone three for them? Oh yeah, now that's, um, that's quite tricky, isn't it? In some ways, the zone two markers you, you could do by doing critical speed. I think that would be fine. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's not a problem. Um, calculating your zone one is probably more tricky, I think. Um, with my runners, I tend to use perception of effort. So I have what I call zone one, zone two, zone three, and, and I have a, a short verbal, you know, short written description that they, they then have, you know, about what it should feel like. So I guess it, it's kind of zone one would be, you can, is it, you can talk to somebody all the way around. You can have continuous conversation in zone one. Zone so two, you could have, um, you know, conversation, but it's, it's more intermittent. And, mm. and zone three is much, you know, you might get the odd sentence out, but you're not going to get much more than that. But, it, you know, it's, it's much harder effort. You're not going to be speaking at those efforts. Yeah, I think most people can appreciate if they're just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. They can like get out a couple of sentences, but if they get out a couple of sentences and they have to kind of catch up on their breath a little bit, <laughs> I think that's, uh, um, yeah, yeah, most that's people can recognize that sort of intensity. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely zone three. And so zone two is that kind of middle ground where you can have, you might be able to say a little bit more, but but you'll still need to kind of, you can't talk continuously through that. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess that's a, if runners can train to kind of have that awareness, I know new runners or people who don't really have that internal perception, it's kind of like a, a practice to kind of accurately interpret. Was that a, a, a four out of 10 effort or was that a six out of 10 effort? It's kind of really tough for new runners to kind of, you know, have yeah. that awareness, but it is like a skill. I think that it can be practiced and I think people can get quite accurate. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that. I, I think they can, but I think that there's some people and certainly I was one of them, but I always struggled to, to be able to rate things, you know, that kind of five, yeah. six, seven, eight kind of band. I always found it very difficult to, to kind of um, distinguish between some of those. 
Yeah. Um, it might be a good segue to the next question that I have written down. Um, when it comes to a recreational runner wanting to increase their running performance for endurance-based stuff, um, is there stuff that they can be monitoring if they're putting together a strength training or if they're putting together a running program and they've said, you know, um, they've put their mileage and that mileage steadily increases, um, what else should they be monitoring if they wanted to get a good result at the end? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think there's probably um, two ways of looking at monitoring. There's the, the sort of monitoring that you might do occasionally. So things like your movement screens, your critical speed tests, um, maybe one RM tests, those, those kind of things, the things that you would do far less frequently, maybe every three months or so perhaps. Um, but then there are things that you can do much more frequently. So like you say, you can monitor your, your mileage. What a lot of people don't do is that they don't um, kind of use a, a measure of training load or, or they, they use mileage as their measure of training load, but you could be running, you know, 40K a week of just continuous running, or you could be doing 40K a week that has three interval training sessions, but you would still log it as 40K, but clearly the demands in your body are very different. Um, and I, I think that, that maybe, you know, that's where we need to move in terms of monitoring training load is have some kind of score that incorporates both. So you can have things that are called TRIMPS, um, which is, stands for training impulse. Um, and that, that's a, a score. And there's lots of different ways of calculating this. There's a score that reflects both the intensity and the duration of the, of the session. So it's kind of a, an amalgamation score. Um, now you can do the simplest way is to give yourself a score out of 10 for how hard it was in terms of the intensity and then multiply that by how many minutes you've run and that just gives you what they call session RPE um, and, and that will you know you can you can plot that score over time you can you can monitor that and you can accumulate that on a weekly basis um, so you can do that and then you can go through much more sophisticated versions you can look at things like time in zone so where you have the training intensity distributions you can use those kind of models. If you've got a, a Garmin um, or you use Strava, they tend to have, uh, if you use heart rate from the watches, they tend to have zones. And so you could look at how much time you've got in zone and you can you can work out from there. You can give yourself accumulated scores. So you have something called Edwards Trimp, where if you use a five zone method, you look at how much time you spend in each zone. Zone one is multiplied by one, zone two is multiplied by two, zone three by three and so on. So you, so you weight the zones, so you get a, a bigger value from spending more time in the, the high-intensity zones, and you come up with a, a total score for each training session, and then you add those up to give you your weekly total in the same way that you would do with your mileage. So there's, there's, then, then there are more complicated versions like banisters, trimp, and so on, which are quite difficult to do. But you, you know, um, So there's those kind of things that you could use instead of just using mileage, which may give you a better reflection of... Um, the kind of training you've done that week. Um, yeah, but- it kind of reminds me of, um, I also interviewed Nathan Fenton, who's a, an Australian coach here, and he does a lot of work around power or like having someone, if they have a luxury of having like a foot pod, yeah. um, almost like creating the, the running program, but yes, it has the mileage, but as soon as it's intensity, you just allocate a certain um, power output to that training session yeah. and kind of calculate it that way, which, um, seems to be, if you have that luxury, if you do have a foot pod and if you do have those, those means, then that could be a good option as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think wearable technology is the way forward. I think that's where we're going to, we're going to go and 10 years down the line, we'll have all sorts of training metrics from different wearable technology that we can, we can use. Um, yeah. in, in, you know, in the meantime, you know, for, for my group of runners, um, when I'm, when I'm planning their training. I just have how much time they spend in different zones and, and I generally base that, um, well, I, I have kind of like zone one, zone two, kind of up to critical speed. And then beyond that, I tend to use race paces, how much time they spend at 10K, 5K, 3K, 1500, 800, you know, and I, I've got a weighting score that I put against them. Um, and I just give a, you know, a, a score per session and a weekly total and I just plot that weekly total. Yeah. Makes yeah. me like try and think of what type of runner would like that. Obviously if there's a runner who wants to increase their performance, which I'm assuming a lot of the runners that you work with yeah. are wanting to do that, that would be a way to structure 
the week. Um, but I, I do recognize that there are a lot of listeners that are plotting around. They just love running. They just want to reduce their yeah. risk of injury yeah. and um, not necessarily have a marathon to train towards. But it also makes me think if they're training and they're noticing there's like a lack of recovery, they're noticing their legs are a bit stiff or it's hard to um, do those those long runs are getting harder and harder to do. Or if they find that over the last 12 months, they've had several injuries that just keep popping up. I think if they're that type of runner that either wants to increase their running performance or they're just popping up with a lot of, a lot of niggles or lack of recovery, if that's you and you're not implementing these sort of things, then maybe it's worth a bit of time investing in looking at zones or looking at power or looking at, um, that sort of distribution and making sure that that's all you're ticking yeah, the boxes I, there. I think so. You know, I think the, the biggest single factor of running well is consistency. You know, you need to be able to run injury free um, and train consistently because fitness just accumulates. And I, I think that's, mm. that's the, you know, I, I think the, the one take home message I would give to every runner is, is be able to train consistently. Um, you right. know, and it, it would be better to train at 80% of what you think you can do all of the time than it would be to kind of go hell for leather for three or four weeks and then get a niggle, miss a few weeks, do a few weeks, miss, you know, there's nothing more disruptive to your, to your performance and, and psychologically difficult to deal with than, than that kind of inconsistency. So I think consistency is, is really the major factor and it's, it's better to do what you can, you can cope with and do that consistently and slowly edge it forwards than it is to kind of try and hammer things. I think that's, um, that's so true. It's so true. You're trying to like, as runners, like, a very common runner mentality or behavior is to, as soon as you feel good, try and really push yourself, test yourself, <laughs> go for those long runs, go for those hard runs. And you sort of kind of push that red line or that injury kind of zone. Yeah. You're sort of flirting with it a little bit until it finally knocks it over the edge. And then you have to take several weeks off of like, or sub maximal efforts or really having your injury dictate how far and how fast you can run. Whereas like you're saying, if you keep to 80%, instead of really flirting with that injury line, then it allows with a lot more consistency and it, it kind of compounds over time, doesn't it? If you have 12 months of not being injured, then that can have like true powerful effects on your running um, moving forward. And then obviously your performance, if you're keeping up that consistency. That's right. And, you know, and you're, you're, you know, you've, you've mentioned it in some of the previous podcasts about tissue capacity, you know, your, that, that tissue capacity goes up, your tendons get stronger, your muscles get stronger. So then you can start to edge things up, but you've, you've got to allow those adaptations to, to take place. Um, yeah. I, I did have one of those. Go on. Uh, as a runner, I, I chronically overtrained and I, I'd missed about six months out of the sport and I was just getting back going again. And David Costill, who is now retired, but he was like the, the top running physiologist in the, the 1980s, really. And uh, he gave a talk in London and I went to, to watch him and his opening slide said the purpose of training is to stimulate growth, but growth only occurs during periods of rest or recovery. And, and that was kind of one of those light bulb moments for me. I suddenly realized all those things I was doing wrong was that I was always thinking about the kind of the growth part and training hard to do that bit and never really programming in the rest of the recovery into my training program. And I think that's a yeah. really important part, isn't it? You know, and the harder you want to train, the more you have to think about recovery. Yeah. Um, Shona Halson is one of the, um, she's a researcher here in Australia and she is, she's worked with a lot of Olympic athletes around recovery and a couple of quotes, uh, thrown her way when I interviewed her, she was saying that, um, some it's, there's a belief out there for some people that like you can't get overloaded All you can do is under recover. So like if you, yeah. if your recovery is so ideal and so optimized, you can't possibly get an overuse injury, um, was really like, if you just think about that way. And she said the same thing, if it's, you don't get stronger during your hard efforts, you get stronger doing the hard effort, but all of the magic occurs, the rest and restoration after that episode, yeah. it just doesn't, you can't have that hard session and not recover and not get stronger. So it's, um, if you, as long as you think about it that way, then it tends to restructure a lot of your training. Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. And just going back to that kind of, what can you monitor? Um, it, it's slightly going out of fashion at the minute, but there's this thing called acute chronic workload ratio where you, you take your, if you're a runner, you take your weekly mileage and you compare that to the average of the previous, however many weeks you want to take. And usually people work at about, um, the previous three weeks. 
So you get that sense of what you what you're doing now compared to your recent training history. Um, and if, if that ratio starts to drift above 1.5, certainly in um, some of the team sports, they're seeing people starting to get an increase in injuries. And there's some, mm. it, it's kind of going out of fashion at the minute in the team sports, um, people are contesting whether it's, it's real or not. But I just like the idea of comparing what you're currently doing to, to what you've done recently. So you don't get that spike in your training. So if you're planning yeah. your, you know, your next block of training, you could look at what you're doing now and then you can plan the next week. And if that is more than one and a half times what you, you've done in the previous three weeks, then maybe that's too big a jump. And that might be a way of just kind of holding you, you back a little bit. It's, I'm glad you made that point because it follows the principles that we all know. It's the adaptation zone exceeding your adaptation zone or exceeding what your tissues are capable of doing. And you're sort of structuring that as an individual. It's really nice. And I know a lot of my clients and a lot of my runners, they say, well, where can I start? How much is too much? You know, how do I know if I'm ready for this sprint session? How do I know if I'm ready for a 10 K run? And it's all about that. It's just, if you compare what you're about to plan with your previous uh, mileage and the average of your previous mileage, if you spike it above 1.5, that's what, like a 50% increase in yeah. workload then yeah. um, it's not necessarily mileage, it's workload. So it's intensity um, yeah. factored in as well. Uh, then, yep, elevates your risk of injury. It's the same principles. And so when you're talking about monitoring something, I think that's a very wise choice. And if you're finding that you're still breaking down every couple of months, then maybe it's not 1.5, maybe it's 1.4 or 1.3 yeah. for you if you've had yeah. a lot of injuries or um, lacking in some other area. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd agree with that. And that's where I think maybe nice. having, rather than just mileage, having a score that's some kind of training impulse where you're looking at the intensity and the um, the duration of the sessions, um, that might be a better score to put into that model, into that ratio. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know I had this question written down, which we've kind of answered. Um, when it comes to, say, people wanting to increase their performance, um, are there any other areas that runners go wrong or it's kind of like misunderstood when it comes to injuries or preventing injuries or training loads? I know you said consistency, like having consistency is like a big one. Uh, I was wondering yeah. if you had any other thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that would be my, my big thing is consistency, but I think kind of over the years, looking at other, looking at what runners do and talking to different coaches and being on coaching workshops, the bit that's kind of struck me is I don't think people have very structured programs necessarily. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that's a really important factor, particularly if you're aiming for key races. I, I think you need to have a structured program. Um, and I think the program is structured on two levels. It's structured on kind of like a, a macro big level and on a, a micro level as well. So that the macro level is all about the kind of phases that you're going to go through, the things that you're going to do. Um, and maybe that relates to the kind of training intensity distribution stuff that you've, you've highlighted from, you know, um, and then on the micro level, it's, it's more about your, your week and making sure that your week balances. And that's where you need to look at the, um, the recovery when you plan your week. And I, I see too many people doing too much. It's too hard. I think, you know, so they might do yeah. three sessions a week or something like that. And I think, you know, two hard training sessions a week is, is plenty. You, you know, you might have another moderate one in there, but then anything else is just easy running, I think. <clears throat> And I yeah. Think that's um, for those who want to increase performance, but also those who are quite injury prone as well. I think mm -hmm. like anyone can like thrive with a structured program. And if someone's constantly getting injured and they don't have a structured program, the, the, the magic in just writing things down and yes. looking at what you do, like a lot of people really struggle to remember what they did two weeks ago with their training mm -hmm. load and they just like, it's really hard to reflect back. I, I'm putting my hand up. I've like, I don't really follow a structured program, but I know the benefits. As soon as I write things down and see what I did, I'm like, oh, actually I've already ran four times this week. Yeah. Maybe that's enough. Maybe I'll just do a strength session or a rest. But the ones who feel compelled to run every single day, because they, they seem to forget all the hard work that they've done during earlier in the week. And they just um, smash themselves out and they want to get so many benefits and they think that doing more is going to achieve that. But like I said, if you're getting knocked back with injuries and having to take like a couple of weeks off, uh, every couple of months, it's not going to reap the rewards. 
Um, yeah, so there is magic in writing things down. Yeah, I agree. I think you can then start to spot patterns, can't you? There's, there's sort of an emerging view now in sports medicine that um, overuse injuries are just errors in your training program. Yeah, you know, for sure. That, I, I would 100% believe that. Yeah, I, um, I, I agree with that. I quite like that idea. And I think if you, if you see injuries in that way, rather than, oh, I just got unlucky, you know, which so many runners say, don't they? Oh, yeah, I just got this. I was going really well, and then I just got this, and whatever it happens to be, you know. And I think that um, if, if you see it as you've made a mistake in your training prescription somewhere along the line, you can backtrack and start, to, like you say, if you write things down, you can go back and you can see where things started to increase rapidly, whether it was the increase in intensity or the increase in volume, or, even, or maybe even frequency, perhaps. Um, you know, you, you've then got a way of going back and correcting that and changing your program mm. to be more consistent um so yes yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely a, a very strong advocate of keeping a training diary of some description and recording it yeah again. yeah i usually hear that they're injured they they blame their shoes they blame the running shoes they're quick to point to that or they say it's because they don't stretch enough and then there's those two major ones and then you look back over their training program you see these spikes in training and they just don't <laughs> think of it it's just not something that's in the yeah. forefront of their mind for some reason yeah, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> some of the, some yeah. of the things are, are dead obvious. But I also think that, um, you know, in terms of going back to your question about um, errors that perhaps people make, so I think, yes, training program, having that kind of structure, I think is important. Um, but also strength and conditioning. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, of having strength and conditioning in your program all year round. Um, you know, if you think of running as a an impact sport, you've got lots of repeated impacts and you've got to, be, you know, your muscles and tendons and you know your structures have to be able to absorb all of those um and i think being well conditioned is is really important you know as you well know um tendon tendons get stronger through very heavy loads rather than lots of repeated light loads it's a, it's a much better way so being in the gym and lifting some heavy weights will you know give you that kind of protection uh, I, I, yeah. I know people see strength and conditioning as a, a performance enhancer but I, I tend to think of strength and conditioning first and foremost as a, an injury preventer so that you can train consistently. And then you can think about what you're going to do with your strength and conditioning program to enhance your performance. But I, I think yeah, it, it's it, not a, um, it's strength and conditioning shouldn't be something that a runner wants to do to increase running performance. It should be a necessity to like iron out any gaps in your, like to, um, enhance yourself as a more of a complete runner, a more resilient runner. That's what every runner should strive for in strength and conditionings. I mean, running is just the, it's just a movement pattern, isn't it? In the same way as throwing is or kicking or whatever it happens to be, it's just a whole body movement pattern. And if your movement pattern isn't quite right, then I think you need to look at why is that, you know, can you recruit the right muscle fibers? Do they coordinate properly? Do you have muscle imbalances? And I think the gym is the place to rectify that rather than mm. trying to change your running style necessarily. I, I know that there is gait retraining, but I, I think that a lot of the, the problems come from muscle imbalances, you know, recruiting the wrong muscle groups or not being able to coordinate them properly and, and just stripping things back to basics in the gym and, and getting those movement patterns right, I think then enables you to run much better. Yeah, totally agree. And I think Rich Blagrove will be happy that you answered it with some strength and conditioning in there as well. <laughs> He'll be delighted. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so we have um, strength programs. Oh, we have running programs. You have strength and conditioning. Anything else? Any other gaps um, or um, things you want to include? I've, I've really picked up on um, this year. I'm sorry to plug someone else's podcast here on, on your show. but um, Do it, yeah. <laughs> there's the Supporting Champions um series by Steve Ingham and there, there was a podcast on there by Barry Fudge who has worked with Mo Farah and was um, British Athletics endurance physiologist and he was talking about race preparation and when he, the athletes he works with he talks about this own the track or own the start line I think he said it was own the start line that was it and he said well if what you want to be able to do is when you stand on the start line you want to be able to say to yourself I'm ready and then he said, so what do you need to do to be able to get to that point? So work backwards from there. What do you need to do to be able to say that? So in the minutes before, the hour before, the day before, you know, whatever it happens to be. And I, I found that was I, that was a really good idea. The group of athletes that I've, I've started coaching from September, um, they're only kind of 15, 16 year olds. Some of them hadn't raced before. 
And so I, I produced this little Word document and it had like different time frames and I wanted them to fill in what they were going to do in those time periods just as a preparation and then just to experiment over the over the races um you know what they what they were going to try out try different things to see what would work for them um and it's just that idea of you know what am i going to do five minutes before my race what do i need to do 10 minutes or half an hour an hour and just that kind of process of preparing yourself so that you knew exactly what to do so when you stand there you think yeah okay i've got this um, wow, that's cool. I think that's a really nice kind of way. And I don't think people do that a lot. They turn up, they warm up, maybe they chat to their friends or they, you know, they're looking around for someone or they, they don't really know what they're doing. And, and maybe having that kind of structure to what you're going to do um, helps you to kind of be more focused and more prepared. Yeah, I'm thinking of a, a runner who, say, um, trains for a marathon. And the if you have the mentality of, doing all the right things, doing all the right things in your training and getting to that start line. We know for a marathon, like a, a whole bunch of scenarios can happen. Like you can just have an off day, but if you get there and say, all I've done everything I can up until this point, now let's just enjoy the moment, reap the rewards. And if yeah. it's a, if I have a bad day, I have a bad day. We can't predict that. We can't um, anticipate what's going to happen or what time you're going to get. But what you can do is do all the right things in your prep um yeah. to get you to race day and that might be the recovery component it might be sleep mm -hmm. it might be like um strengthening your mental game for the um or adapting a, a good strategy a good um pacing strategy beforehand visualizing the pacing strategy and so you're physically and mentally prepared for that start line then whatever happens happens it's very um it's a very uh what's the word it's very mm, you can embrace that moment and you can, um, like if you have a bad day, you don't just blame yourself, blame your training and say, oh, I should have done something else. Like you just know that everything might fall into place. It might not, but you've done everything that you can to get there. Yeah, that's right. But I think also if you, if you have a plan, you're more likely to be able to pinpoint where it went wrong if it does go wrong. True. You know, if you've yeah. got some kind of time frame, you can think, well, I did all these bits, but that bit there didn't quite work for me. And next time you can change just that piece rather than chucking it all out and thinking it didn't work. I, I think, it, you know, having a clear plan of what you're doing enables you to kind of start to pinpoint the bits that do work and the bits that don't work for you. And yeah. And because there was a, um, a, a tapering kind of chapter in the book, I thought I might chuck mm. in that question and see what you what your opinions were for like a just general guidelines around taping and uh, tapering and what you have worked with a whole bunch of athletes in the past, what sort of guidelines you've, you've managed to find that works. Yeah. I think, um, my experience is that it, it's very individual. Um, some people, most people I think respond well to tapers. Um, I have had some people that haven't responded well to tapers and I think that was probably more, psychological than physical um mm -hmm. i think that sense of this is the one race that you're really going to aim for um and maybe that little bit of pressure associated with that you know we're tapering for this race we're doing everything right and i think sometimes people struggle to to deal with that um but generally i think you know um tapers work well i i think different people need slightly different tapers it depends and i think you know the first thing i'll say is try it somewhere before the big day you know if you've got a race maybe three months out try a mini taper or something just so you can see what it feels like you know if you're going to run a marathon and i don't know maybe 10 weeks 12 weeks before the marathon you've got a half marathon just try a taper out just to see how it affects you you know practice maybe your carb loading practice reducing your training volume um and and just see how you feel on the day you know um and that that's important i think if you if you just wait till you get to the race and it's it's not quite working for you then it's too late isn't it so uh, yeah so give it a, give it a try somewhere i think is is my first piece of advice um in terms of the taper intensity is key you've got to maintain intensity if you if you lose intensity in your training then you lose the adaptations so it's it's all about reducing the training volume and I think, you know, the, the advice and certainly case chapters, excellent. It's got some really good practical advice in there. Um, it's, you know, reducing by somewhere between 40 and 60% in terms of your overall volume. Um, okay. I think in the last episode they recommended, um, so your, uh, I think it was the two, 
the two weeks out, you reduce it by 25% and the one week out, you reduce it by 50% was the overall, like, I guess, loads. Would that be something similar? Like, would that be a general guideline? Yeah, I think that's probably not far out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so okay. much depends on how much you do, doesn't it? The more, the more, the more you're, you're doing, the easier it is, the bigger the reduction that's going to come and therefore the bigger the benefit you're going to get. True. Um, yeah. And I think it, it depends on um, what event you're running for, how long you might take before and what's gone before as well. Um, so, yeah, I think generally a two-week taper works well. Certainly for, for marathon running, the, the marathon runner that I'm, I'm working with at the minute, um, we, we've used a, a process. It's actually something I grabbed from a, 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 one of the unsung coaching heroes of, of British athletics, a guy called Lindsay Dunn. He coached Charlie Spedding, who won the bronze at the LA Olympic Marathon. And um, their, their um, process was they would have a, they'd find where the race date was, and then they would work backwards. They would have a three-week taper. And prior to that, they would have a six-week mileage block. And then the rest of the training would be kind of normal sort of 10K, half marathon type stuff. And so they had a six-week build-up and then a three-week taper. And I found that works really well certainly for the runner that i've worked with that's that's been very good you know this is a a female masters athlete who as a as a 40 year old ran a 257 wow you know it it seems to work you know every time she's run marathons half marathons that kind of six week build up three week taper has has been fantastic so when you're talking about reducing volume but maintaining intensity are you talking about say if a runner usual intensity distribution is 80% easy running, but 20% like speed work throughout their week. Um, it's still maintaining that ratio, but just dropping the overall volumes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, instead of running 10 K at whatever speed that might come down to an eight K the first week, then maybe a a six K the next week or or five K the next week, but the speed of the run remains the same. And if you're doing intervals, if you're doing intervals, say you're doing, I don't know, five or six, uh, 800 meter intervals that might become four, then it might become three and you, you would keep the speed the same. You might even increase the recovery between the intervals just so that the session was, you know, less challenging perhaps, but the, but the yeah. intensity remains the same. Cause that's the bit that maintains the adaptations. Yeah. Good to know. And like you said, <clears throat> it depends on the individual. They might need mm-hmm. to try a mini taper prior to the event, or if the taper doesn't work at the main event, there's always going to be another one. And so you can just use that as a learning curve and then just, yeah, try the same thing, uh, try something different next time. Really good. So if there's, um, as we're wrapping up, is there any other parting words or any other misconceptions or any other based on um, the book, any other words of wisdom that you want to impart on runners um, when it comes to increasing run performance, reducing risk of injury, training for events, those sort of um, things? I suppose that the big things would be, I, I think my, my general philosophy is, is do the fundamentals well, you know, make sure that you have, you know, the, the kind of all the things that you need in your program, you need to be conditioned, you need to have your easy days, you need to have your days where you, you do harder, harder work, but, but just get the fundamentals right. And I think, there are too many people seeking the magic session or the magic exercises in the gym or whatever it happens to be. They don't exist. You know, I think, um, there are, there are no kind of holy grails really just a, a good, sensible, well-structured, well-organized training program that ticks all the boxes enables you to train consistently and injury free. That's where you need to be. Okay. Uh, I'll tick off a couple of these fundamentals. So, they being strength and conditioning at least twice a week yeah. um, in the gym, yeah. lifting something that's a little bit heavier rather than body weight exercises. Um, <clears throat> something that's building on like low intensity running volume. I think just like building up a greater volume is uh, a leading to a more resilient runner. Um, yeah. Making sure the ratio of intensity has the right balance. I think that's another fundamental. Yeah. And <clears throat> if you are one to, be putting in, if you're getting to that stage where you, you created quite a high mileage and you're doing quite a large workload, then optimizing recovery would be another fundamental that you need to include. And I think, um, when it comes to the recovery, like we know this, that sleep is huge when it comes to recovery 
And like you said, when it comes to getting the fundamentals right, some will, will wake up earlier to do some foam rolling, do some stretching, do some massage balls, like um, Theraguns, all these like really flashy kind of recovery things when they could just stay in bed and they could just sleep for an extra half hour and get in there, have, um, it's, it's not as sexy. It's not as flashy. It's not as gimmicky as a lot of the, the ad campaigns out there and the marketing ads out there, but it's the best thing you have. So like you say, it's not sexy, but doing the fundamentals right and making sure that you're covering all those bases is probably, um, over time going to allow to a more resilient, more well-rounded runner. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that, that summary wholeheartedly. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Um, all right. So the book, um, I'm definitely including a link in the show notes to get the book, to go buy the book. Um, is there anywhere else or any other links you want me to include, um, for people to learn more about you or more about, um, the book um, or, I suppose know. if people want to contact me, um, just through the university, the university, uh, webpage has my email address on it's the easiest place to contact me. I think. Great. Cool. Um, I've said this several times, but this book is kind of like the book form of what this podcast is all about. It's all about, um, educating the runner in the best way possible through like the best evidence, but also telling it through the stories of things that's worked. I know you have like some case studies in here as well and speaking from coaches who have like been, you know, or just like real world examples of what's working. And so research can't tell us everything. Um, it's all about like how the studies are designed. And so you've got, it's like the, the practice of running both from the clinical guidelines or the research side of things, but also what people have tried, what coaches have tried, what athletes have tried and what's really worked really well. Um, so it's, it's what this podcast is all about, raising the right information. And, um, if anyone really loves this, every running coach and every running, I guess, health professional should have this book. Um, every runner who's really invested in understanding, uh, having a real in-depth understanding about what's happening around the body should get this book. Um, it covers so many different chapters, so many, um, like all areas of running really. And so, um, I can't plug the book enough. I think it's, it's great. And so that's why I decided to have you on and, um, start reviewing all these chapters. So thanks for editing and creating the book and thanks for coming on uh, for this interview. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for, for plugging the book. I, you know, we really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I think the work that you're doing is great. I think your, your podcast series is fantastic. It, it's what runners need, you know? And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path. <laughs>